Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Guess That Record. I am your host, Jackson Reed. I want to once again thank you, the listeners, for tuning in. The show is nothing without the listeners, so thanks again for being here with us. This is the show where we talk about music and try to figure out which album I pulled from my collection. I'm so excited to be talking with this week's guest. He is a former goaltender who played for 15 years in the National Hockey League, spending that time with the New York Islanders, Los Angeles Kings, and San Jose Sharks. His career highlights include his then record-setting 73-save performance for the Islanders in the 1987 playoffs and helping the Kings reach the Stanley Cup final in 1993. Since retiring from playing, he has worked as a broadcaster. He is currently with Sportsnet, where he is an in-studio analyst on Hockey Night in Canada and a color commentator for the Calgary Flames. It is an honor to welcome Kelly Rudy to guess that record. How are things going, Kelly? Well, I'm quite nervous, Jackson. Thanks for the invite. I uh, I got the invite about a month or month and a half ago, and thanks for reaching out. Mm-hmm. I love music, but I'm quite nervous. I told my wife today when I was leaving that I'm really nervous because I know your love of music and uh, your recording and so on, and and uh, I feel like I've I've forgotten a lot of the stuff about my youth and the music I used to love. And my dad, you know, it sort of got me started in the, my love of music and and so on around the house. And uh, then family gatherings, we, we played a lot of music. Not We didn't actually play the instruments, but mm-hmm. we listened to a lot of music. And so I'm finally here and super excited, but I know I'm going to do poorly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I always make sure that uh, the guest does well. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's great to be talking with you live and in person today. Thank you. We're recording at the library here at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Uh, I'm a former student, so it's good to be back here. Right, nice. Uh, and it's awesome to have you on the show for two big reasons. Um, one, you're the first guest that we've had on the show that doesn't come from a musical background. Right. Which I think is good because, you know, this show is all about being a fan of music. Sure. And... Um, you know, it's uh, it's good to talk with musicians and and people in the business, but mm-hmm. I also think it's good to get sort of a different perspective on it from people that are sort of outside of, of right. the world of it. So, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to say you're exactly right. I, I don't play, but I music has been a big part of my life. Mm-hmm. And so when I was a kid, I grew up or I was born in 61. And as I said, there's music around the house. And I started to really fall in love with it and all sorts of different kinds. Like my dad... Love classical. He had a violin that would he'd play around the house. Mm-hmm. Um, then he sort of went into a little bit. He liked uh, a little bit of country. Um, he liked Liberace. Um, and then when we'd go to family gatherings, there'd be like uh, Simon and Garfunkel. There'd be uh, my uncle loved uh, uh, Charlie Pride. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's all sorts of different things around. And I. I fell in love with Queen early on and so on. So, yeah, and, and just so people know, the, my love for music, when I would be on an NHL charter plane many years ago when I was playing and there'd be card games going on and everything, I would have my music and I'd sit in my seat for three, four hours, however long the plane was, and I'd listen to music the entire time. So mm-hmm. that's the sort of a stronghold it has on me. Yeah. And the other reason I'm happy to have you here is because you're the first guest we've had on the show that has a song specifically written about you. Uh, I got to say it now, Rudy is on duty here at Guess That Record, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Uh, So for those who have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, back when Kelly was with the LA Kings, uh, they came up with a song called Rudy's On Duty, 
Uh, that's all about how great of a goalie Kelly is. Um, I had never heard the song until they played it on a Flames game. Oh, is that this right? Year. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man, I got to search this thing up. Um, I did some research, and it looks sure. like it was created by the L.A. radio station Pirate Radio 100.3 FM in 1989. Well, it was um, – that's, I think, where it was first played. Yeah. But it was uh, written by a guy by the name of Harry Prezigian. Now, he, Harry – he turned out to be a friend of mine years later. Right. He uh, he went by the name, um, he was a songwriter, Harry Paris, I believe. And so he wrote a, a number of songs that uh, made it pretty big. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was like uh, the hair bands and that kind of stuff, more heavy metal type things. Uh, Harry was a really uh, terrific guy. And unfortunately, we lost him just a few years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, it was strange to, to sort of meet him. He was a super... You see exactly what he looks like in the video, yeah, right? Yeah. And uh, he he had front row seats in the Great Western Forum in the second period. Uh, I would be in that end, and he would just be yelling my name and everything. And for the first while, Jackson, I thought he hated me because oh, yeah. he was so loud. I thought he was screaming obscenities at me, but he was just such a great fan. Right. And as I mentioned, we got to know each other later. And, uh, yeah, he, he showed me some really cool adventures. Like he would go into songwriting sessions. Do you remember a guy by the name of John Wetton? He was, uh, what was, uh, their band was called Asia, I believe. Oh, yeah. And so going into the recording session with him and there are other big artists uh, around, it was really cool. I mean, I love music and I've been to many concerts and great experiences, but to be in the recording studio with a guy as accomplished as John Wetton mm-hmm. and to hear his voice and everything, it was just, you know, it was amazing. Was there any other like cool stuff you got to do with, uh, with Harry there? Um, I sat in a lot of his writing sessions, so he would do all sorts of writing things with rhymes and just all over and over and over. And he'd give me all these ideas about songs he has. And Mm -hmm. I would go to his apartment for a few hours, uh, and, uh, just, it was a great uh, learning experience for me because I never really knew how you craft a song. Right. And I didn't know about the rhyming and all these different things and all the different tools he had. He was very dedicated to the craft, of course. And then, yeah, so going back to the song that's all about you, uh, I I was wondering, like, what what uh, would, like, Wayne and the guys on the team would have thought about that? Oh, my gosh, they teased me like crazy yeah. um, <laughs> because, you know, it's kind of a odd-looking video. And, yeah. and uh, but, you know, it was so cool because that's when cassette tapes were out. Mm-hmm. And so we had it on a cassette tape, and my kids were super young at that, t- that age. I, I, somewhere, I'm going to say ballpark. Uh, I think we only had two kids at the time, and Jessica and Megan might have been five and two or something. And so they'd put that on the stereo all the time and right. play it, and they'd dance and yeah. things like that. So I was quite embarrassed uh, around the guys with that song, but my kids loved it, and so I loved it, right? That's good, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's sort of funny because, like, it kind of follows this trend in the 80s to have songs about sports teams because you got, like, the the Chicago Bears doing the Super yeah, Bowl Yeah, sure, right, okay. And, the L.A. Rams did a song. New York Mets did a song. And sort of more related to us, the Calgary Flames yes, did exactly. a song. Yes, exactly. I remember that. Yeah. And uh, that video is something else. Yes, it is something <laughs> else. <laughs> and since you've, you've kind of experienced that yourself, I, I have to imagine like with the, the video that the Flames did, um, you know, like you got Lanny McDonald and Mike Vernon in there. And the, all the guys in the video probably thought like, hey, we'll just do it quick. 
Yes. It'll be on TV once. Yes. And no one will ever see it again. Right. But now it's on YouTube exactly. all these years later. Yeah. I would have been aghast because um, I I have no rhythm, right? So I can't dance. And, you know, there's a couple pictures where the right. guys are trying to groove. And I could not do that. I, I I don't I can't quite remember the Flames video, but I would have definitely been the guy in the background right. and, and hoping that the camera didn't pick me up or anything because that would have been uh, it would have been so nerve wracking for me. I would have been so embarrassed to be in that video. Yeah, <laughs> I think Mike Vernon does a great job in his does little he? part there. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna have to look at it tonight when I get home. Yeah. So um, you're originally from Edmonton. Yep. Uh, you now live in Calgary. How long have you been here? Um, well, when we were playing in L.A. in the early 90s, uh, you know, you start to think about uh, retirement and where you might want to live. And my wife and I kind of had some ideas. We kind of thought maybe about uh, British Columbia. We kind of tossed around the idea about Vancouver, or maybe uh, the Okanagan. But then it really occurred to us rather quickly that we're both Albertans. Donna mm-hmm. is basically from Medicine Hat. She grew up in Saskatchewan, but I met her in Medicine Hat playing junior. And I'm from Edmonton, of course, as you mentioned. And so we kind of thought our Calgary would be a perfect place right in the middle so we mm-hmm. could visit our families, right? So, and it turned out to be a great thing. So in 1992, we bought some land here. It took us about a year to come up with some plans and we built and it was done in 94. So even though I had a bunch of years left in National Hockey League, we knew we were coming to live back here in Calgary. Okay, yeah. And you've been broadcasting ever since you retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to clarify, though, how long have you been with Sportsnet now? Sportsnet since the summer of 2014. Okay. When they signed the new contract with right. the NHL. Right. And you started doing the Flames games around that time? That's then? right. Yeah. I, uh, I was doing ex- exclusively Hockey Night in Canada. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it was actually just before I went to Sochi in uh, 2014 for the Olympics, and I got a call from the head of uh, Sportsnet, Scott Moore, and he asked me if I'd be interested mm-hmm. in doing the Flames and Hockey Night in Canada. And uh, and he said, go to Sochi, think about it, and you tell me how busy you want to be. Right. So I chose both jobs, and I'm happy I did it. I'm just thrilled doing both. They're entirely different, as you know, Jackson, doing yeah. studio work and play-by-play, or a color uh, entirely different, even though you're talking about hockey and you're trying to dissect a game, it's just different. Had you ever done, uh, like color commentary? Yeah, before? yeah, I had. And so my first couple, three years with hockey night in Canada, starting in 1998, I was doing Saturday nights on hockey night, um, as a studio analyst. And then we had our executive producer at the time, John Shannon, mm-hmm. and John, uh, wanted me to sort of you know, round out my broadcasting. So he had me doing color on certain events. We had a bunch of Monday night games back then. We had a bunch of Thursday uh, night specials. And and so I was doing those and I I went back through my notes. I kept all my uh, notes from those games. I think I did something like 30 games color analyst back early in my broadcasting career. And then not again until uh, 2012. And so I was sort of put in a different role for two years. And it was actually a nice step for me to relearn how to do color mm-hmm. and also to add that to my resume when uh, Sportsnet came again in 2014. Right. And I'll just put it out there now yes. so that everyone knows I am very biased, but I'm a huge Flames fan. Cool. Uh, I have my own tickets. Uh, yeah, Flames, oh, nice. fan, Flames okay. fan until I die. Okay. So uh, because of that, I hear you and Rick Ball calling yep. games all the time. Yeah. And I don't really watch other teams, honestly, so I don't hear a lot of other broadcasters. But from what I have seen just kind of quickly around the league and stuff, 
I feel like you and Rick call a very straight game. Like you guys are, are pretty balanced when you call the game. And I've seen Oilers fans online say okay. that you guys are big Flames fans and stuff. But would would you say that I'm right in my assessment there? I try. We try to be very balanced, mm-hmm. and and I know like this is a, a hot topic, you know, in not only in hockey but in every sport. That yeah, whichever team you you cheer for, you seem to think the other team, the announcers are biased. But mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, Jackson, uh, you know, I I'm not a Flames employee, and you know, it's it makes my job a whole lot easier when they're winning. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really affect my life one way or the other, right? So yeah. I just call a game as I see it. And, right. and I try to stay uh, very positive uh, in most cases about what I'm seeing and what I'm calling. But I understand how f- uh, fans get that way. Um, but frankly, I appreciate you saying that, that we, we pretty much uh, toe the line. Yeah. And related to that, do you think that because you didn't play for the Flames during your career, does that sort of help you stay Sure. Balanced? Sure. I think there must be a little bit of bias if you've been in that organization before. Mm -hmm. And I also think there'd have to be bias if you were employed by the organization. And some broadcasters are, right? So Rick and I are not. Um, And so that that makes it a lot easier for us to do our job and and to say what we want to. Um, I I actually, I was quite proud. uh, Rick and I did a national game, I don't know, two, three weeks ago, uh, Calgary and Edmonton. Right. And I had a number of Euler fans reach out to me on social media and say, thanks, they appreciated the well-balanced broadcast. So okay. when people do that, I you know, I take note of that. It means something to me. One thing uh, I've always been curious about mm-hmm. um, is what is it like to go on a road trip as a broadcaster? And obviously you have experience as a player and now as a broadcaster sure. doing that. So like if the Flames are going to California, yep. what's that like for you? Okay, so I can only speak pre-pandemic because right. uh, pandemic changed everything and we stopped traveling and, and uh, it's only starting to open up. In fact, I have a road trip coming up at the end of April mm-hmm. with the Flames. They're going to Nashville, Minnesota and Winnipeg um, and that finishes off their regular season. And uh, we have asked the Flames if Rick and I are allowed to go on the charter, uh, which we used to do a ton before. Yeah. Um, we still haven't, we don't have that answer yet, um, but I can tell you traveling with the team is so much easier. It's it's a healthy way to sort of maintain a, a relationship with everybody in the organization and in particular have a conversation with some of the players. Uh, Rick and I leave everybody alone, but... Um, you know, we, you know, on, it's on small plane, right? So mm-hmm. you're, you're going to have contact with everybody and, uh, it's nice to sort of have a chance to say hi and see how everybody's doing. And, and, uh, but I, I only hesitate because my, my job is different than Rick. So because of my dual role with Hockey Night in Canada, right. I would most likely only be on about 30% of their charters. Uh, and oftentimes I'd go to Toronto Sunday if they're on the road, then I'd fly from Toronto to wherever they may be, meet the team, maybe join them on one more charter. You know, for instance, if you're if I'm going to LA and then their next game is in San Jose on a Thursday, I'll fly with them after the LA game. But Friday, I'll get back on a plane, Air Canada plane, and go all the way back to Toronto. Then I may go on the road and meet to the Flames again. And so my charter experience would be less than Rick's. He would be at advantage in that way that he can spend more time. But uh, I, I really love it. And the quality of or the treatment is amazing. It, it's just so the food you get is uh, phenomenal. And and the experience to talk to people like Brad Tree Living or the coaches mm-hmm. and and it's really cool. I love it. And I miss it. And uh, 
now this is an observation I've made sort of going yes. from the road to home now. Yeah. Uh, but when I go to Flames games, like my seats are in the press level. So at okay. the very top of the building. Sure. Uh, and for those who haven't been to Calgary, the Saddle Dome has this curved yep. roof. And at the highest point are the press boxes where the TV and radio people mm-hmm. called the game. And it's basically a big metal cage that's, that's screwed right. into the yep. roof. Yep. So you're floating way up over the ice yes. calling the game. I've always thought it must be a little nerve-wracking to sit up there being that high up. You know, that's a great question, and I'm not going to re- reveal names, but uh, over the course of years, uh, some of my friends in the business um, have a fear of heights, and so it, it's hard for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know one person that uh, is a fantastic broadcaster, and it, the ability for him to do a game rinkside was a whole lot easier than it was to be in the press box. Right. Now, I'm not, I don't have a fear of heights, although, you know, when you're walking in part of that cage, uh, it it's really high and you're right over center ice. And yeah. so uh, that takes a little bit of uh, getting used to. But where our broadcast booth is, it's terrific. Our view, we're, we're basically looking right over the ice. We're just, I don't know, about 10 feet behind the penalty boxes. Mm-hmm. And so we've got a fantastic view of the ice. And the only time that you might have a problem where we're situated is if there's a player coming out of the penalty box and he happens to touch the puck, before he's entirely out, um, we can't see that. Right. We can't see a skate. So that's the only place that I think our vision is blocked. Okay, yeah. And I love the Saddle Dome because it's just, it's so quirky and it's got character and, right? and history that you don't really see from newer arenas. But out of curiosity, what are some of your favorite arenas to watch a game? There are many. Um, I love Montreal, the Bell Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sight lines are terrific. Um, L.A. for me, um, I know I, I'm smiling, and you probably don't right. know why, but the uh, TV broadcast booths are much lower. They're actually in the stands. They've built them in a certain okay. area, um, but it's the coldest rink in the NHL. Oh. It's freezing, and you wouldn't think you're yeah. right in that uh, arena and that it's absolutely freezing. Um I like Dallas. Again, that's not a traditional broadcast location, but we're closer to the ice. Uh, I love, I, I haven't been to the, the brand new one for the New York Islanders, but the old Coliseum that they right. refurbished yeah. where I used to play, that was terrific. Um, the, man, there's so many that it's hard to identify all of them because they're all, as kind of what you said about the saddle, don't, every arena is a little bit quirky, right? Mm-hmm. And some, some of the newer ones, I think, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus here. It would be safe to say that the broadcast location is not ideal. We're too far away from the ice. Right. And it makes it very, very difficult. You know, the buildings are beautiful, but it makes it very difficult to see the ice and the play develop and so on. So, And also, frankly, to see the numbers. I mean, uh, we mem- try and memorize uh, all the players' numbers and, you know, the names. And, and that can be very tricky if you're, if you're having a really hard time just even seeing the number. Yeah. And, um, yeah, the, the majority of NHL games I've been to have been at the Saddle Dome. Mm-hmm. I've seen the Flames play twice at Rogers Place in Edmonton. Yeah. And two weeks from now when we're recording this episode, yes. not when it's released, right. but I'll be going to Seattle to see the Flames oh, play Oh, that's there. a great building. Yeah. And um, I'm really curious to see what that'll be like watching a game in the U.S. because I haven't been to okay. a game out of Alberta. So. You're going to love it. That's a great building. I've been there once mm-hmm. uh, at the end of uh, December. The Flames were there, and uh, I was blown away. 
the architecture of that building is phenomenal. Yeah. And uh, the viewing experience is great. The broadcast location is fantastic. And, and it's also nice to go to a different city, right? I hadn't been yeah. to Seattle since my junior days, which right. is in the 70s, I guess, last time or 80s when I was last in Seattle. So it's really cool to see the very first Starbucks. I went down right. and grabbed a coffee from the, there. And the, the market. market. Yes, yeah. exactly. So it was really fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've got family out there. Okay, so I, cool. I, I've been to Seattle many times. Yeah, right. Over the nice. Years. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Mm. I wanted to bring up your book, uh, Calling the Shots. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I read it a few years ago. Okay. Uh, and I've never met anyone that's uh, written a book. Oh, okay. So what was the process like of putting this together? Yeah, Kirsty McClellan Day and I had known each other, I'm going to say ballpark, about eight or ten years before we got together to do this book. And uh, the timing was right. I'd been asked a number of times um, after I retired from the game to write a book and just didn't think the opportunity was there. Or I needed, I guess, distance from the game to get more clarity because I think sometimes if you're not far enough removed, you you know might have different bias or different feelings. And once you move away from the game for a while, then you can, I think, sometimes see things clearer the older you get. So then when she and I started collaborating on this, um, I didn't recognize how grueling it was going to be. I believe it was in the summer of 2017, or excuse me, in the spring. And so, as you know, Jackson, the playoffs are underway. Right. And so we got started before the playoffs uh, started, and then it comes to a bit of a halt in the the playoffs because I'm just so darn busy, right? Yeah. And, and I felt guilty about that because um, there are deadlines that Kirsty has to meet to for HarperCollins to get to part of the book in in time and to screen it and read it and things like that. And so we got stalled a little bit. And then once the playoffs end, I'm exhausted. And so it was Kirsty was really good working with because she allowed me some time to regroup and clear my head and right. get some rest. And then when we went at it again, it was really intense. Uh, we'd go, uh, her and her husband, her uh, late husband, excuse me, Larry Day, they have they own Pyramid Productions. And so I'd go down to the offices and we would meet, uh, I can't remember how often, but we'd meet for about 45 minutes to an hour. More than that, and it, it's exhausting because you're revealing a lot about your life, right? Right, yeah. And so once, once we really got a real good grasp of... Uh, the majority of the book. Then we started meeting at her house and it was kind of really nice because we'd sit outside and, you know, it just feels really good. And then we hammered out the end and the last chapter, I'm not sure if you recall it to Jackson, but the last chapter, the book was almost put to bed. And and I thought, I thought long and hard about this and, and uh, we were meeting maybe for the last time until the final proofread. And uh, I got all emotional. I said, you know, Kirsty, I, I think we should sit down. I've got one more story to tell you. And so I shared my uh, mental health issues um, Mm -hmm. that I didn't really recognize until uh, our daughter Caitlin had mental health issues. And then when I look back on my life in 92, 93, when I really struggled in LA, I recognized that that wasn't something, I wasn't struggling with confidence or anything. I had mental health issues. And for me to share that with Kirsty was very, very emotional. She wrote the chapter in no time. Like she just hammered it out and I was really impressed. And then I, I was meeting actually Caitlin, our youngest and Donna at Earl's in West Hills. And I had the transcript and I showed that to them, that chapter. And they were kind of blown away because I, 
you know, at that point in my life, I was kind of embarrassed, I guess, to share and talk about it because most men were like that. Right. And now I'm happy to say that most men are sharing their thoughts. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. And um, now kind of coming back around to the music side of the mm -hmm. show, a cool thing you talk about in the book was that uh, you had a nickname given by yes. Wayne Gretzky and Brent Sutter, That's right. which was Tunes, yep. because you were a big music guy. <laughs> uh, so, I, yeah, what I guess you kind of mentioned like hearing music at parties and stuff. Yep. Um, I always, uh, I always like to ask guests like, what was the first song or album that you remember hearing that made you take music seriously? I think. Well, we could only buy seventy eights, right? because we couldn't afford a real album until a little bit later. But I remember uh, Elvis Presley. Um, I think the one song that I really um, loved at that time was In the Ghetto. Oh, yeah. Um, and and uh, there were other Elvis songs played in our house. Um, Wild Eyes by the Stampeders, for some reason. That one really stands out to me. Some Canadian stuff Yes, there, Canadian yeah. stuff. Um and then Queen, I really started to get into their music. And of course, um, when I really started to really, really love music, I'm going to go back. So when I was still, this was still in the 60s, so I'm not even a teenager yet. Mm -hmm. I remember we had, uh, I listened to Grand Funk Railroad. I don't know if you've heard of yep. it yet. And they had a live album. And, uh, and I can't remember the drummer's name, but man, he just, he was incredible. And so... I'd go in our garage and I'd get some cardboard boxes and I'd kind of set them up. Right. And, and I can't remember what I used for drumsticks. Might have been spoons or something. I'd go <laughs> play away in my own brain, right? My own right. little world and picture being a rock star. And so that was cool. And then finally, when I really, really, really got into it, it would have been bands like Kiss and the Eagles that really stood out to me. Okay. Yeah. And you talked about also going back to the book, um, how you had a ritual the night before. Uh, like when you were on the road, mm -hmm. where you would play a CD of your mm -hmm. favorite songs. Mm -hmm. What sort of songs would be on that CD? Well, it would have been uh, your buddy that you were in the Tom Petty, right. Damn the Torpedoes. So yep. I played a lot of Petty at those times. Again, uh, Springsteen, Eagles, Don Henley. Don Henley, had, uh, the band had broken up, and so there was a lot of uh, uh, Henley individual stuff. Mm -hmm. um, man, there was a... Cher. I like Cher early on. Uh, well, not early on, but I remember her from her Sonny and Cher TV show, and right. I thought she was great. So that would have been in my Islander days. I played a lot of that in bed. Um, just anything that would that was kind of I could connect to. Yeah, uh, Inspirational, but I could connect to. Uh, melancholy. I like uh, songs, you know, that have a sadness, but more depth. There's like a, so a story why it's sad, yep. um, if that makes sense. And so, you know, I have such a vast range. I'm, you know, last little while I've moved into some country that I really, really like. And uh, it's just, I'm so happy because I have so many different genres that I can listen to. So when Donna goes to bed at night, I usually sit in my favorite chair, have a glass of red wine and I YouTube and I explore and go all over the place. And nice. so don't ask me who my latest, oh, uh, what's her Brandy Carter? No, uh, here I have it right here in my music. I I wanted to look this because she's amazing. Uh, Carly Pierce, okay. just phenomenal. Some of the greatest songwriting, and uh, she's got a beautiful voice. 
on Saturdays often now, uh, after the show's over, um, in particular when I wasn't traveling to Toronto, I'd watch a great Grand Old Opry oh, and yeah. see all those acts. So you can see from my, uh, my uh, what I'm saying, I'm all over the map. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. And I've also read uh, Wayne Gretzky's book, uh, 99 Stories of the Game, yep. which is a great resource for anyone that wants to learn about like the history of hockey. Yes. Uh, but in the book, Wayne was talking about like being in the Oilers locker room mm-hmm. and how music was like a very important tool for like bonding amongst teammates. Cool. I like it. Uh, and I have to imagine that's a pretty common thing you see in any NHL locker room. It is, although there can be, you know, People that want certain sort of songs and different genres and yeah. so on. Does Wayne mention, because I, I don't want to uh, share something that he doesn't want shared. Does he share who he may have enjoyed, the bands? Well, I seem to remember he was talking about like Springsteen. Okay. The one that stuck stood out to me was, I think it was uh, Kevin Lowe yeah. really wanted to play Stevie Ray Vaughan. Oh, okay, cool. And the rest of the team was like, okay, yeah, but he's kind of... it's. Not exactly our thing. But, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, I mean, I remember teammates loving ABBA oh. and, you know, it, it just fantastic artists. And it, but it just surprised me that would be in the NHL dressing room. But, totally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I've been watching the NHL since I was like seven, mm-hmm. I would say. And there's always been music at totally. games as long as I've been going. Yeah. But, um, you, you know, you go back far enough and it's like, it's just organ like it's just oh, yeah. the organist yeah. playing. Yeah. But like when you like when you're starting with the Islanders, for example, in the early eighties, was it mostly just organ or was was there other songs playing? No, I think it was just organ. Okay. Yeah. In fact, I remember it was because in eighty seven we won a big playoff game at home. And kind of strangely enough, one of the interviews I had to do about the impact that the organist had oh. <laughs> on the outcome of the game. Wow. So yeah. Um yeah. So just different thoughts, right? Yeah. But yeah, I was wondering, like, it, I guess probably by the end of your career, they were like playing other oh, songs. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, totally. Were there any songs on the ice that would ever get you like really pumped up or were you just so focused yes. on the game that... Revolution by oh, the Beatles. Nice. That one uh, still, every time I hear it, just blows me away. Yeah. But that one, there are certain songs um, and Revolution was one of them because you know my love of music. I had to start, sort of guard against getting letting that emotion of that song get the best of me right because it you know for me i can't speak for all people or all athletes but it gives me a jolt of adrenaline and sometimes you need it and sometimes you don't sometimes a jolt of adrenaline uh is too much because you're already in a zone right you don't need more that's a you know that's when uh, your home fans are cheering or even the visiting fans and and you've got to really sort of find a way to step back or out of yourself a little bit because the emotion just gets too high. But Revolution for me was just a... And they played it in the Great Western Forum, it seems like, once a night, maybe not that often, and that was just a special one for me. Yeah, that's one song that I've never like bothered learning on guitar because I don't think I'll ever get that tone right on that song. That seems so hard, right? Yeah, but for me, like when I'm at Flames games, it's like ACDC, any mm-hmm. ACDC song, okay. and Raise a Little Hell by Trooper. Okay, if great, I those, right? I'm like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> now you get to experience that, that, but we don't as broadcasters, right? Because right? we've got the headset on and um, and we're talking and you yeah. know, we're working with our production people to what's going to go to air next. And so I don't get that experience. Right, yeah. Um, and in your book, uh, I was really fascinated about your time with the Kings because mm-hmm. – 
being in LA at a, that time would have been like such a whirlwind to be a yeah. part of because you got there right when the team really sort of took off, like mm -hmm. getting, getting Wayne Gretzky just totally changed them from being kind of a yeah. second rate franchise in LA to yeah. being like a big show in town. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy to be a part of that because like really besides LA, maybe Toronto and, and the Rangers are the only other teams that get that kind of glitzy yep. following yep. that the Kings do. Yeah, it was weird. Um, you know, meeting a lot of uh, not only celebrities, but musicians that I greatly admired and having my picture taken with them after games and then, you know, <clears throat> having conversations with them about things. It was just weird. Um, as you know, I've mentioned a bunch of times my love of the Eagles and when the Hell Freezes Over tour right. started back up in 94, uh, we were... We went to, they played four consecutive shows at the Irvine Amphitheater. Okay. And so we went on night two and night four. And uh, the first night we went, uh, we were invited backstage during the intermission. Oh, and yeah. that was, uh, you know, everything is a weird experience because growing up in Edmonton, and I wanted to be a park warden. I had no idea that <laughs> hockey was going to get in the way and this was going to be my life, right? right? I had no idea. And so you're backstage and there's a million celebrities and... I'm not sure. Do you know who Irving Azov is? Yeah, he's the, the, the manager, manager, right? Yeah. So he's there, and he comes over and says hi to us and hope you're enjoying the show. And just these, I'm thinking to myself, I look at Don, and I'm like, wow, that is just ridiculous that that guy even knows who I am. Yeah. And so just, you know, I remember driving home many nights uh, and saying to Don, I just can't believe, you know, this guy. Glenn Fry one time comes up to me and says, Kelly, I'm a big fan. And I'm thinking, yeah, well, you don't probably don't know the fan I am of your band. So yeah. it was just weird. Yeah. I never um I, I saw the Eagles in Calgary in twenty eighteen. Yep. Um so that's post Glenn's uh, yes. death there. Yes. So I, I never got to see the band like with the original lineup right. there. Right. But they were still great. Oh like, my gosh, right. Like and so was Vin Vince Gill a part of that concert? Vince Gill and then Glenn's son yes. Deacon. Yes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I was just happy to see Joe Walsh because I'm a huge He's fan of his. So phenomenal, right? Yeah. I, and I'm a big fan of Vince Gill. I just mm -hmm. think his voice is uh it blows me away. Yeah. And And he's a great guitar player. He is, yeah. And it, talking about celebrities in the locker room, yeah. like in the book, there's pictures mm -hmm. of you with like Sylvester Stallone and sure. Kurt Russell, John yeah. Candy. Uh, and you became friends with uh, John McEnroe, yep. the, the tennis player. <laughs> I know what story you're getting to. Yeah, I was going to say you were at his birthday party. I was. So anyways, I had met Bruce Springsteen before, and oh. it was interesting. <clears throat> Bruce Springsteen, we had a bad game at home, and Tom Webster was our coach, and he Typically, back then, I don't know how it is now. Hopefully, it's a little bit different. But uh, coach would come in and say that he's not happy or whatever, and you've got to do this better and whatever. And sometimes they get a little bit angry. And I remember Bruce Springsteen was in standing right beside our owner, uh, Bruce McDowell, and with uh, Bruce was Jimmy Iovine. Right. And so the three of them were right there, but it's kind of in a corner. I don't know if I'm going to explain this properly, but they can't see the front of the room where they're situated. But I'm, I'm literally about three feet away from them. And Tom Webster comes in and he says, hey, guys. And then Bruce Springsteen says to me, I don't know if he knew who I was or he saw my nameplate above. He goes, Kelly, can I stand here? Because he was afraid that 
you know, we're going to get Heck, and he's going to be in there. He won't be. Right. Tom Webster can't see him, but Bruce didn't want to sort of overstep his boundaries. So I said, no, no, you're good right there. Stay there. So Tom finishes, and then uh, uh, I I looked over at Bruce and Jimmy, and they they it took it inside. They that must be how a band works, right? That you have confrontation sometimes because you weren't as sharp as you needed to be, and right. and so. They certainly weren't surprised by the conversation. Then Bruce came over and started chatting, and it was really cool. And then that would have been like, I don't know, 91, 92, something like that. And then I got, this is like a personal thing, I got really kind of shy, and that may be part of my mental health stuff. And so we were invited to John and Tatum's house for his birthday party, and there's only like nine people, right? There's mm -hmm. like Bruce Willis and uh, Eddie and Alec Van Halen, uh, Valerie Bertinelli. There's a couple pro tennis players, and there's Bruce Springsteen. And and uh, Don and I were just in the backyard, and I didn't have the nerve to go up and say hi again to Bruce. Yeah. And I, I, I always kind of regretted it. Like, why was I... You know, we had a good time at the party, but it was just ridiculous that I wouldn't have gone over, right? Yeah. Well, I was gonna—I was literally gonna say that because I, I think you could have—you could have done. Of course, I—I I would have been probably more intimidated by like Bruce Willis. Okay. Yeah. But I would go and talk to Bruce to Springsteen yeah. because he's just really down to earth. Like, yes, um, my agent yeah. uh, is a guy named Eugene Foley. Okay. And I, I we, read this earlier today. Right. Yeah. And um, he—he uh, he was on the first episode of uh oh cool this podcast. i gotta go back and listen yeah yeah and so he he promotes my music mm -hmm. for me and he mm -hmm. gets me opportunities and while he also helped like he helps up and coming sure. artists like yep. me he also works with big names and one of them is bruce like wow. he he and bruce have personally worked together on many wow. projects uh and gene is originally from new jersey okay uh, he doesn't live there anymore, okay. but, um, he was telling me how the first time he met Bruce was mm -hmm. at a uh, pet smart oh, no in the nineties there in, in New Jersey. Okay. And he, yeah, he was just there getting some things <laughs> and he bumps into Bruce and Bruce was just there shopping right? as well. And, um, they just kind of kept running into each other like that until they finally started working together. Yeah. But, um, yeah, like I, I think. You know, if if you can meet Bruce in a PetSmart, I think you could have just gone <laughs> yes, up to exactly. And and you weren't even a nobody, right? <laughs> like you're, you could have said, "I'm the goalie for oh, the Kings," right? Yeah. Oh my gosh, it, just uh, weird experiences, and um, yeah, I, I, I and for me, I it's really cool to meet a lot of the actors and mm -hmm. stuff, and they were so down to earth. The only ones that I thought were maybe a little bit harder to get to know were the younger ones because they maybe had a little bit more attitude, but maybe they needed it to get into the business. Right. But the ones that uh, were around for a long time, they were just like you and I and just normal. Mm -hmm. right? right. It was so cool. Yeah. And um, uh, going back to Gene, though, he was really excited when I was telling him, like, I'm going to talk with Kelly on the what? show. Because he's a lifelong Islanders fan. Oh, no way. So he's like, oh, that's awesome. I know, Kelly. That would be Cool to talk to him. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's funny. It just what a small world, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so you you you've met lots of mm -hmm. while you were in LA, you met lots of people. Um, and yeah, so who who are some other musicians that you've got to meet and and get to know a little more? Yeah, you're gonna um, way too many. I it's just a, it's a really small world. Sports, 
um, and uh, musicians, they they really blend well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know why. I've I've heard this said, and I think it's accurate. I know a lot of musicians wanted to be athletes and vice versa. Yeah. And so that's, uh, I have to tell you, I'm drawing a bit of a blank because you meet so many, especially in L.A. Right. And you also do um, here because of Hockey Night in Canada. So you meet so many and and, uh, it's crazy. And um, I think that one of the things I want to go back, I've never met Brian Adams. I know actually Gretzky's really good friends with Brian. Right. But one of my this is a strange thing. When I was playing for the Islanders at Union uh, or Nassau Coliseum, I went to a Brian Adams concert for the first time. Uh-huh. In junior, I used to play his early albums, and right. it was just just amazing. And so I see Brian Adams, and the entire building is just rocking out, right? They mm-hmm. just love Brian Adams, and this is New York, and I'm thinking, I, I'm just a kid here, young kid in my 20s playing for the Islanders. And to see the admiration the people had for Brian Adams, it was a moment I, I felt so proud to be Canadian. Right. Right. I, I'm, I'm like, wow, I, I had I knew Brian Adams was a worldwide hit, but I didn't it didn't really sink into I saw all these uh, New Yorkers cheering for Brian Adams. Yeah. And, and then I was two years later, hear a bunch of stories from Wayne. So it was really cool. And um, it's funny you bring up Brian, but on the second episode of the podcast, I interviewed uh, Jim Valance. Oh yeah, I is, saw that as well. Yeah, who's Brian's uh, co-writer. Yes. So yeah, got a got some good Brian stories. On I this can podcast. imagine, right? Mm-hmm. And and they're they're uh, you know how they write. By the way, I was uh, you one of your drummers was the drummer for Mellencamp, Kenny Aronoff. Yes, yes. and I read an article and uh, just you know his story. What. What really blew me away from the article I read is that the dedication that band band had to being perfect, right? Mm-hmm. They had their when they weren't on tour, as you know, I'm not telling you, I'm telling the people listening. Yeah. I had no idea that even when they weren't on tour, they had practice sessions every single day from eleven to eleven. They only had a two hour block from five to seven yeah. uh, to get a bite to eat and all all that. And they did it every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, as Kenny said in the article, he, they weren't the best musicians, but they worked harder. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I think they were at the very top, right? But yeah, but it was kind of really cool to see what he was thinking, and and uh, Mellencamp has been a favorite of mine, and yeah, I saw him in uh, Lethbridge a couple what? years ago. Yeah, no way, that's cool. Kind of a weird place to see him, right? But yeah, that was he was touring through Canada, but he wasn't playing. Oh yeah, the big cities. He was just playing the small towns. So uh, did he have a band or just acoustic? It was a band. It okay, was, it cool. was in the Lethbridge Hurricanes arena. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, nice. Um, now before the next segment of the show, yes. I just quickly wanted to ask, and and this is the local Calgary part of the podcast sure. for those listening. But one area of interest that I love. Uh, when looking at sort of the history of hockey in Calgary is um, in regards to the city's former arena, the Stampede Corral, sure. uh, which they unfortunately torn down about a year ago yep. now. But um, I got to spend a lot of time in the corral. Uh, I saw hockey in there. My high school graduation was in there. Oh, wow. But um, and, and I even wrote a story about the history of it while I was taking journalism here at Mount Royal. Okay. But you would have played there with I the sure Medicine did. Hat Tigers. I sure did. And every person I've talked with about the corral has some crazy story about it. So I was just wondering if you have any memories playing there. It was a wild place to play. And I remember it didn't affect me at all, but the boards were the highest you'd right. ever seen. And I know players have always talked about it, that 
the boards are might have been a, as high as five feet tall, mm -hmm. um, and there the bench was tiered. I think it had three tiers because it wasn't long enough, and right. so the only way you could fit all the players on was to tier it, and then you'd come off and go make to the top tier, and then you know your line of right. eventually get make it way make its way to the front of the bench. You know what I loved most about the corral? The well, pictures. Yes. I, I would walk around that arena and look at the pictures because I love hockey history. I'm not a hockey historian, but I love the history of the hockey. And I, I know quite a bit of history, but that was just phenomenal to me. And then I would see pictures when they were uh, uh, in the WHA. Right. And uh, people like Don Smokey McLeod and, and other players that uh, played a little bit before me. And I just love that part of I, I still – Every arena I go into in today's uh, world, and I, a lot, not a lot of them have pictures anymore. Yeah. But I still love that going around the arena and finding where they have certain uh, memorabilia on the walls. Totally. Yeah. And my uncle has some crazy stories. Like he, he saw the Flames play there yeah, when they sure. first moved, and he was like right next to like Dave Keon and yeah. Brian Trottier. And, yeah, um, totally. Uh, and he one time had a Lethbridge Broncos player throw a helmet. At him, <laughs> that's Junior. Yep. Yeah, um, and it's sort of a cool music story to tie it all back together. But when I saw the Who in Calgary, what in 2016, uh, Pete Townsend was telling a story about the first time the band played in Calgary, yeah. which was on their first North American tour in 1967. Seriously, and they played at, in the corral during Stampede. Yeah, and he um, he said uh, when we when we got up on stage, it smelled really funny. <laughs> And what they had done is they had shoveled in all the horse shit and oh, put yeah, it under right. the stage. <laughs> right, exactly. So. I'd forgotten about The Who. That that was one of my early favorite bands, and they had a double album called Quadrophenia. Yep. And uh, that was really my go-to for about a year. I just loved that album. For sure, yeah. Rain Over Me, that song, Roger Daltrey belting that one out. That's phenomenal. Yeah, they're one of my favorite yep, bands, same. too. So, yeah. This episode of Guess That Record is sponsored by Marvel Marketing. Marvel Marketing is a full-service digital marketing agency headquartered in Calgary, Alberta, that creates digital impact for your company. To find out more, visit marvelmarketing.ca. All right, Kelly, it is now time to enter the guessing portion of this time podcast. Time to get nervous, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll go over the rules for you and okay. any new listeners. Okay. Uh, so I have a bag down here. Okay. And inside the bag is an album that I pulled from my collection. Uh, so I'll give you three clues okay. about the album. Okay. And then you have to ask me 15 or up to 15 yes or no questions to determine the identity oh, of okay. the album. Okay. And as a tip... Uh, you can ask questions like off the bat, like, uh, you know, is it, are you experienced by Jimi Hendrix? But if all your questions are just guessing album names, you okay. might, you might right. run out of questions. Right. Okay. Uh, so Kelly Rudy, are you ready to guess I, that record? I hope so. I hope I do it right. And I hope I understand the rules. <laughs> okay. Uh, here are your three clues. This album came out in the 1980s. It had astonishingly seven singles reached the top 10 of the Billboard Hot 100. And one of those singles caused controversy. Question one. Okay, I have to try and get my time frame here. The 80s. Was the lead singer a male? Yes. Question two. Oh, boy. 
Um, did the band have four members? They had more than four members. More than four. Mm-hmm. Question three. Did they play rock and roll? They did. Question four. I'm my mind is taking me into the seventies. I gotta think in the eighties. <laughs> um, was that was this their first album? It was not their first album. Question five. Let me think here. Um, was the song that had controversy was it played on the radio? It was. It was a big hit. Okay. Yeah. Question six. Was the song somehow related to occult or no? Question seven. Holy cow! You've got me stumped already. <laughs> um, well, I'll uh, I'll will give you a hint here. You've met this artist. Okay. Um, well, Bruce Springsteen. It is Bruce Springsteen. And which out it would would have been uh, uh, born in the USA, of course. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. As I pull it out. Oh my gosh! Congratulations, I, oh, Kelly. Look at that! I. It was born in the USA. Okay. And uh, yeah, that copy that I just pulled out there was originally my dad's copy. No that, way. That he bought back in the day, but it's in my collection now. So. And I know we're gonna go on, but can you give me three of your three or four of your favorite songs from that? Yeah. Well, um, I was gonna go over that later, actually. Okay. But um, uh, I, I my five favorite are probably "Dancing in the Dark." No Surrender, yeah. Bobby Jean, Cover Me, yeah. and My Hometown. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I love, uh, I just love Dancing in the Dark. Courtney Cox in the video. Courtney Cox, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny with Dancing in the Dark because that was his highest charting single. It hit number two on Billboard. Uh, and it was kept off the top spot by When Doves Cry by Prince. Oh, wow. Okay. Which annoys. Two great songs. Yeah, which annoys my dad <laughs> so much because he thought it was a number one. Right. And he was like, how is that possible? <laughs> and it's funny because the only song that Bruce has written that hit number one was Manfred Mann's version of Blinded by the Light. Yep, right. Isn't that? It's kind of weird to think how. He's had such a prolific career, but he hasn't yes. had a number one song. I was blown away by that, and uh, I found it to somewhere, and that Bruce is singing it, mm-hmm. and it just seemed weird. It uh, does, right? Yeah, yeah, because most people don't associate that with him, right? Mm-hmm. But wow, yeah. So I, I'm going to go with "Born in the USA." Cover me now. Cover me was um, kind of weird to me. Not weird. I really related to that, not not for Bruce's uh, stardom, but I was becoming a tiny bit more popular, and it was a, kind of a word or song for me. Like mm-hmm. I wanted my beautiful wife Donna to sort of protect me from the outside, right? It, uh, he wrote that, I believe, for Donna Summer. Oh, cool! But John Landau, Bruce's manager, yeah. said keep it. Oh, is yourself. that right, eh? And it was a top 10 hit, so yeah. Wow, Downbound Train and uh, I'm on Fire and My Hometown. Yeah. Cool. I also brought. Uh, I have. I have some more Born in the USA memorabilia okay. here. Uh, I've got a 12-inch single here of Cover Me. It's perfect. Cool. We were talking about that. That is cool. Yeah, and probably the weirdest thing I have. But this is a 12-inch single box set that was only available in the UK. So it's uh, it's got like a, a bunch of the singles. Uh huh. Um. It's it's got. Uh, I'm going down yep. here, the 45 of Love it, that, yep. which wasn't available in England. So this was oh, why wow. it was in here. 
Uh, then you've got a 12-inch single of Dancing in the Dark. Okay. The the Cover Me one. Yeah. Uh, Glory Days. Yeah. And I'm on Fire. Oh, my gosh. But um, And it also had a poster, which is why I bought it, because I wanted the poster. So oh, I, I love posters back then. Yeah, I framed I framed the poster. But <coughs> um, So, uh, yeah, and I, I figured it would be perfect to pick a Springsteen album because, yep. um, uh, because you've sort of sure. rubbed shoulders with him. But... Uh, and you also told me on before the podcast that you were a fan yes. of his. So. Yeah, I exchanged that. Ex- mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So th- the controversy, was it the Born in the USA song? Yes. Yes, yeah. I figured. And we yeah. will get to that. Okay, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to uh, give some facts about the album for those unfamiliar with it. Born in the USA is the seventh studio album by Bruce Springsteen, released on June 4th, 1984. It turned Springsteen into a global superstar. Mm-hmm. The album featured seven singles that hit the top 10 of the Billboard charts, which was one of the clues. And it's one of the best-selling albums of all time with 30 million copies sold. That is crazy. Yeah. Uh, So when looking at when this album came out, you would have been right at the start of your career with the Islanders. Uh, So do you have any memories of like hearing it when it was coming out? I do. When did it come out exactly? 84. But No, but what what month? uh, June 84. Okay, that makes tons of sense because I had been playing it a lot in the summer, but I remember getting ready for training camp and I was driving from Edmonton to Medicine Hat to see Donna's family, I think for our final uh, goodbye before the start of the season. And I remember playing it over and over and over again, much to the... uh, Donna hates that when I play songs over and over and over, right? Right. But I love it, yeah. and and so she's gotten used to it over these what 30, 40 years that we've been together. But, <laughs> but I just remember, and there was something a connection I had with Cover Me. But uh, Born in the USA was kind of I, I can understand the controversy because it was you know anti-American mm-hmm. to, and anti-war, and uh, I just thought it was so well written. Mm-hmm. And uh, I met a girl in Kesaw, or no, he met a girl in Kesaw. Is that? I know it's uh, had a brother at Case. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And yeah. And about meeting the girl and, Mm -hmm. and now he's all gone and just, yeah, just so many things about it. I could sort of paint the picture in my head. Exactly. And it's sort of interesting for you because as Bruce became this huge star, you were in Long Island, which is more you're more in Billy Joel's territory there. Yeah, that's right. But uh, it's still very close to Bruce in New Jersey. Yeah. So were you seeing the same kind of scenes that are in these songs like while you were out there? 100%. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so, again, that's sort of the picture you sort of create in your own head, right? Mm-hmm. So I think, and, and that's also with the lyrics. We, I think all of us interpret lyrics differently yeah. and what they mean to us and how we can relate. Yeah. And so I definitely saw that. I saw... Uh, Billy Joel at the Nassau Coliseum again. Right. And just a phenomenal showman and just, man, they love him there. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, he's he's from Oyster Bay, I believe. It's well, we drove by his house one time. Oh, we're, yeah. We were, found out where it was. And at the time, I don't know if he still owns that property, but it was right on the, the North Shore overlooking the Long Island Sound. And right. It was just an amazing property. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, going back to Bruce, this mm-hmm. might be my favorite Springsteen album. Uh, and it's basically between this and Darkness on the Edge of Town okay. for me. But 
Born in the USA, in my opinion, is one of those like perfect albums where mm-hmm. every single song is like great. There's mm-hmm. it's all killer, no filler, mm-hmm. as I would say. Um, yet this album is very divisive amongst the Springsteen fan base um, because a lot of his longtime fans felt like he sort of sold out with this album. Um, you know, because there there were people that had been following him sure. since or like when he was a nobody playing the Stone Pony in Asbury Park. Yep. And now he was playing in these huge stadiums with people who hadn't heard of him until this album came out. Um, and his, his image at the time was also divisive because when you sort of look at him a few years before that, he was kind of this like scrawny looking yep. street rat. Yeah. But then he hit the gym hard. And then by the time he's uh, in doing Born in the USA, he's this big muscle bound right. action movie looking guy, you yep. know. And, and even Bruce is a bit unsure about his feelings towards the album. Um, but, yeah, so, like, where, where does it sort of stand amongst your favorite Springsteen album? Yeah, I'm hesitating because I just absolutely loved it. Um, I'm going to – Tunnel of Love was something that uh, I just absolutely loved from the moment I heard the first song. Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> to me, there was a depth to it. Um, that I I could sort of again create the own the, those same same visuals for myself, right? And I could kind of relate to a lot of that stuff, mm-hmm. and so that one is one that really stood out to me. And then there were two um, consecutive albums, uh, Human Touch, right, and um, Lucky Town, and Lucky Town. Yeah. And by the way, those two albums were played a lot in our dressing room with the LA Kings. Well, and that was when he was in LA at that yes, time. it was. Yeah. And, uh, and I know there was a lot of uh, people that didn't like those albums. And, mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't with the E Street Band at that time. And yeah. Paul Coffey loved those albums. And so he, when he was with us, he played those a lot after games and before games. Uh, but there was uh, a, a song on, I'm not sure if it's uh, Human Touch. I'm going to pull it up. A song called Soul Driver. Right. And a song called Real World. Now, those two songs why those stood out to me mm-hmm. um, and they're crafted differently on this album but about a year before this album came out or these albums came out we went don and i went to the shrine auditorium and we saw uh bonnie Raitt, jackson brown oh, yeah. and bruce springsteen they each had a, their own set it was an acoustic concert right and then the three of them played three encores and bruce played those two songs soul driver and real okay. world and acoustically, it's just stunning. It is just those two songs, uh, to me, put him as a singer and a songwriter in a different level. Even though I had thought he was already at the top, yeah, that just changed my world. And still to this day, when I YouTube Bruce, I usually try and find a new version of those two songs because they're they're kind of haunting to me, right? In a great way. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned in one of the clues. Um, Born in the USA, the song yep. caused controversy, yep. um, and it, it's really one of the most like scathing critiques about America that you can find in a song. And it's a really brilliant piece how it has such a powerful message hidden behind this big pop right. anthem. Right. Um, and of course, that message went over so many people's heads, and to this day, many conservatives think it's this pro-American song. One hundred percent, they do. Yeah. And it, it, it's it's quite the contrast how Bruce's image at the time and the music 
yes. seemingly fits right in with that kind of Reagan era patriotism yes. and manliness, but uh, it's got very radical themes in the songs. Yep. Like the lyrical content doesn't match that at all. Um, and uh, Ronald Reagan actually started talking about Bruce at that time when he was campaigning. And he wanted to include the song. Yeah, and Bruce yes. kind of had to say, like, I'm not on your team. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to play that song. Yeah. No matter how much money you're willing to pay me. Yeah. And the when you look at, because um, obviously it's, it's about a, a veteran mm -hmm. returning home yeah. after Vietnam. Yeah. Um, you know, the album really is almost kind of like one of the first post-Vietnam albums. Uh, because by the 80s, Americans were finally starting to talk about mm -hmm. what happened in the war. Yeah. And, you know, you have albums like Born in the USA, um, The Nylon Curtain by Billy Joel, mm -hmm. uh, Copperhead Road, Steve yep, Earle. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And movies like Platoon, you know, were huh. all coming out around this time wow. where, you know, people were starting to finally sort of talk about the war right. in, in popular culture. And I also think that the tour for Born in the USA was fantastic as well. Um, the E Street Band, of course, added uh, Niels Lofgren and yep. uh, Bruce's future wife, uh, Patty That's Scaffa. Right. That's right. Uh, it ran from June 84 to October 85, and the album was in the top 10 for that entire run, which is crazy. Mm. Uh, and the big man, Clarence, Clarence Clemens, Clemens yeah. was, you know, as maybe as popular as Bruce to mm -hmm. a certain degree. I have a, a recording from that tour wow. here on CD. Wow. It is... Um, Hit one of his shows from the Brendan Byrne Arena okay. in 1984, a venue I'm sure you're familiar with. Oh, yeah, with. for sure. Played in that building many, many times. Yeah, and um, the the energy from the show is just through oh, the roof. <laughs> three hours long, three discs. Right. So we, uh, Don and I, and Greg Gilbert and his wife Tammy, we went to Jersey, um, not to see it at the Brendan Byrne, but to see Bruce at Giant Stadium. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. 80,000 people, right? Mm -hmm. And he, that's in his backyard. Yeah. And so it was just amazing. Um, and, yeah, that must have been three hours also, that concert. And I just couldn't believe his energy. Yeah. It was phenomenal. Is that the same tour then? It, it would have been. Okay, wow. It would have been different time of year because yeah, we he, would have gone in the summer. and He yeah. played the big stadiums at the end of yeah. the tour, so I think this yeah. was the first half of that tour. But, oh, um, my gosh. Atlantic City and Johnny 99, I love those. Yeah. Mm, beautiful. And, um, yeah, Bruce really had, a like, a great trilogy of tours when you because mm -hmm. you can't go wrong with any show from – the Darkness Tour of 78, right. the River Tour of 1980, yeah. and Born in the USA. Yeah. Um, and from what I've heard, uh, Bruce should be going on tour again next year. I saw that. Which, I read uh, that. Yeah, which I, I'll, I will be making the pilgrimage to see him somewhere. Do you know where? Have you, I don't know yet, but I, I'm going to see him. because. Have you seen him yet? I haven't. Oh, my gosh. It's so. amazing. Uh, we have seen him uh, many, many times. And uh, every show is a little bit different because, mm -hmm. as you know, he, he likes to play a different version of a lot of songs yeah. over the course of time. He changes it up. And, um, yeah, I just uh, – I, 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 we saw him at the Great Western Forum, again, with that uh, um, Human Touch tour. Right. And with that brand-new band. Yeah. And, man, were they rocking back then. Like, mm -hmm. he was trying to put a stamp on – yeah. His career, like, you know, I'm not with the East e Street Band right now, but we're still good. Yeah, exactly. He got some great musicians uh -huh. to play. I know um, he did take uh, Roy Bitten, the piano player, yep. with him. Yeah. He was the only 
E Street member to go with him on yeah. that tour. Yeah. And yeah, he's one of the best. Same. Yeah, piano I players, agree. Yeah, so by far, right? Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. My final thoughts on the album. Uh, when you look at it, it really kind of ends the original era of Bruce and the E Street Band. Um, it was the last album made by the classic lineup of the right. band as Stephen Van Zant left following the recording of the yeah. album. And Bruce n- never really made a, another album in the studio, in my opinion, that has that kind of bombastic energy to it that they had from like Born to Run right. through to this album. Uh, and I kind of wish they made another record in the style of Born in the USA because uh-huh. I, I do enjoy Tunnel of Love. Um uh, but I kind of like the sound of Born in the USA sure. a bit more. Yeah, sure. Um, but of course, Tunnel of Love was kind of a reaction to the right. the hype of Born in the USA. So right. he wanted it to be a bit more quiet. But yes. um, yeah, really, Born in the USA is like one of the best mixes of rock and pop. And so for that reason, it's a huge influence on my own music. And that's cool because you're, what, 23 years old? 23, yeah. That's that's quite the statement for a young person like you to have an album, you know, you weren't born of course, and mm-hmm. to have that sort of impact. And, um, that's really cool. Yeah. That doesn't happen very often, right? Like I, you know, I love music, but most people, um, that I really, really follow, you know, they had to, I had to be alive right, to, to really get into them. Right. Yeah. I mean, it just, cause when I was a kid, I discovered the Beatles and then just kind of went from there and it just it, that the older stuff just speaks to me more it just makes more hmm. sense to me so okay i like that well we've reached the end of another episode of guess that record <laughs> i want to thank kelly rudy for taking the time to uh be on the show it was really cool to get to talk with you and uh yeah, about your career and your interest in music. So thanks for being here. It's been my pleasure. Like I told you, um, I was quite nervous coming here, um, but I had a great time, Jackson. This is really cool, and uh, I would like to do it again That's, somewhere down the road, right? That, that would be awesome, yeah. yeah. And uh, I just want to let everyone know that this is the final episode of our first season of Guess That Record. Uh, the show is going to be going on a hiatus for a little while, but that doesn't mean it's over. I'm going to be working hard to find more guests so that we can have even more episodes in the future. Uh, I want to thank Eugene Foley, Jim Valance, Hank Steamer, Mitchell Brady and the Static Shift, and Kelly Rudy for taking the time out of their busy schedules to be our first guests. Their involvement has really helped get this idea of mine off the ground. For the listeners that stuck with us for this first season, thank you so much for tuning in every week. And thanks to any new listeners that are hopping on board with us right now. You guys make it possible for the show to keep going, so I sincerely want to thank each and every one of you for all the support. Make sure to leave a review wherever you're listening, and if you have any friends that like music, get them to check us out. You can also follow us on Instagram at GuessThatRecord. And as I always say, remember to keep rocking, and we'll see you on the next season of Guess That Record. <laughs>